0: Good morning, everyone. Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And uh, we're coming to a very powerful piece of Scripture, one that has gripped the imagination and life of the church since Jesus spoke of it. But we're going to look at how this text grips four apostles' Attention And how Jesus talks to them in such a way where he helps coach them on how to face a surprising and difficult future. And so I want to open up with the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 13 verse 1 in this rather profound section as he's journeying towards the cross. Verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. He's pointing to the temple. He just thinks they're great. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, here's the four, Peter, James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name. Saying, I am He. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations." But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, and I'll hopefully help us understand it a bit later. (laughs) Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Fascinating. It's coming at a very uh, important point of the story where Jesus has just left observing that widow putting in her two copper coins from the temple. And uh, this observation by a disciple, we don't know who, of the beautiful buildings was because this temple, which was built in Ezra's time, it was the second temple, but beautified by Herod. It took him about, I think if my memory serves me correctly, about 40 years. It was a marvel. And it was the pride of Jerusalem. And uh, this Jewish disciple was saying to Jesus, look how beautiful these buildings are, Jesus. And Jesus says something shocking. He said, this building is going to be torn down. And he predicts violence because he says, every single one of these stones are going to be thrown down. It is going to be a cataclysmic, awful experience. Not a natural disaster, but there is going to be something violent that's going to tear this temple down. And we know from history this word was fulfilled in AD 70 when the future emperor Titus came in with the Roman legions. And uh, after a bloody, you can read it in Josephus, the war of the Jews, it was an absolutely atrocious um, war. Such atrocities were committed. It's almost too terrible to to talk about um, this morning. But in the end, Jesus' word was fulfilled and this mighty temple was torn down. And it was cataclysmic for the Jews. You can imagine that this was their place of worship. This was their whole system of approach to God. And uh, in this moment of judgment, which Jesus predicts, their whole lives were thrown into utter chaos. I want to just point out to you that uh, this conversation, first of all, with the disciple and Jesus, it's a fascinating truth about how you relate to Jesus in your life is you don't just talk to him about the trouble that you have. You tell him even the observations that you're fascinated by. And you'll find as you share your life with Jesus in the most ordinary things, he talks back. And sometimes he says surprising things. Any of you ever experienced that before? Yes. And sometimes he says troubling things that disturb us. And that's exactly why these four disciples come to Jesus later. They are troubled about the, this, this prediction of catastrophe. And so they come to Jesus, and they want more information. The other disciples doesn't seem to have the courage to ask more, but these guys do. And so we want to learn about how does Jesus coach his disciples to face a future of a lot of trouble? I hope you're feeling a bit better about our day and age after reading what they were going to face, right? So that's quite a cool ringtone.) <laughs> got a bit of a jazzy feel. Anyway, on that note, let's look at the first point today, is our natural concern for the future. Friends, I think the scripture is coming at the perfect time, not so. I mean, you can't flip up the news without seeing Ukraine, right? You can't help but hear the disappointment in the Zondo Commission. I've got that surname right. So the, the findings was on SAFM the other day. You can't help but uh, ask big questions around COVID. I mean, this, this text about the future is coming prophetically to us as a church. And uh, I think that as South Africans, but just as human beings in the 21st century, we are gripped with a fear of what may happen. Particularly if you have kids. Some of us feel we, we've enjoyed a good space, but what, about, what are the future generations looking like? And uh, friends, that was exactly what these disciples felt when Jesus spoke about a, a troubled future. And... Uh, I want to remind you that the way you understand the Scripture is it's a private conversation, right? Every time Jesus says you in the Scripture, he's talking to these four apostles. He's not talking to us. He's not making prophetic predictions for the future church. What he's saying is in their lifetime. Isn't that something? Within the first generation of these apostles and these first generation Christians, I'm going to, go to glory. These things are going to happen. And that's very helpful for us because when you come at it from other lenses of trying to make it more, it's very confusing. And very often I want to say, this text has been used about the end times. But friends, Jesus says, no, this text is just about the beginning, the birth pains, what the church is going to experience and how it's going to start. And so... I want to also remind you that, that this question that these four disciples are asking Jesus are much bigger than just the temple. You see, for the Jew, imagine this. Your place of worship and center of the old Mosaic covenant being destroyed is a sign of judgment, right? It's a sign that God has departed from Israel. And so what these disciples do is they make this, this, this day of the destruction of the temple They fuse in the second coming, the day of judgment that the prophets talk about, this this great cataclysmic day when God is going to bring judgment upon the nations and usher in a a, a paradise, a a new era of of the kingdom. And so when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, when they ask him this question of how are these things going to happen, in their mind they, they fuse the two, the judgment day, And the destruction of the temple, because for them, it makes absolute sense to do both because of how massive this moment will be for the nation of Israel when the temple is destroyed. You with me so far? So when Jesus answers, today we're going to look. He breaks it saying, no, no, there's two days coming. The first day that we're talking about today is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And we're going to learn a lot, God willing, simple things, but a lot about how this first generation, in their day, they have to cope with a very, very tumultuous future predicted by Jesus. But then next week, we're going to talk about another day where Jesus talks about that day or hour with the second coming, which actually no one knows except the Father in heaven. He separates the two, and he says, we're talking about two different days here. And next, we're going to look at the second coming of Jesus. But the text I read to you today is about these disciples. They are still very much Jewish. They are followers of Jesus. The new covenant hasn't been fully ushered in yet. It hasn't been the cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit. But they are troubled about this prediction of the destruction of the temple. And Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple first. He says, no, no, they're two separate events. One's going to happen in Judea. The other is going to happen to the whole world. Now, what they are asking, my point of making that that statement, is they're asking about end times. They're asking about what is, where is this all going? Notice they ask a, a very important question. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? What they are trying to do is get their head around and secure themselves for this uncertain future. And friends, they are no different to you and me today. In the human heart, In its desire for security, we have this relationship with the future of wanting to know what is going to happen, right? And then to know how do we prepare for it. Those are the two deep questions we ask ourselves throughout our lives is whenever there's trouble or crisis, we go, what's going to happen? And then how do we prepare for it? And, you know, it's it's fascinating. Sometimes we even want to know the bad news just so that we can prepare for it. Have you ever had a, a waiting blood test or result from the doctor and you left in limbo? And you know, I just want to know what the outcome is going to be. I just need to, know, even if it's bad news, at least I can prepare for the future, right? That's what they're asking Jesus. They're saying, Won't you please give us some hints as to what's going to happen and how it's going to, how do we know? What, what are the signs going to be? How do we prepare ourselves and our families and the church for what's to come? And friends, we are just the same today. Isn't it interesting that whenever there are significant wars that touch us, we tend to forget about the ones we don't care about, right? But isn't it interesting when some crisis rises up like the Ukraine and Russia, suddenly there's a whole big talk about the future and end times. Wasn't it like that for COVID? How many of you were spared not the SMS about the one government and the vaccine and all these sort of COVID predictions, right? Everybody's making these predictions about the end times, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Whenever there is crisis, there's a heightened interest in what we call the end times. In, in where is this future going? What's going to happen? And how are we bracing ourselves for it? And what's lovely about this text is it's very personal for the disciples because it involves them. And Jesus, I want to say to you, does not adopt an attitude of saying just ignore the future he doesn't in actual fact he's very happy to talk about it but what he wants us to be careful of is our relationship to the future and how we engage that he's not saying deny it and so let's look at how he teaches his disciples to cope with predictions that startle them well the first that we see here is he tells them to be on their guard now this is very interesting for me He says in verse 5 and 6, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name. Remember when he's saying you, he's talking to that generation. Many will come in my name saying I am he, and they will lead many astray. What Jesus starts with is not the detail of what the future is going to look like. He starts with a warning. A warning about how we are to relate to what is coming. And friends, I want to say to you today, if this warning was to the first generation of apostles who established the faith of the church, how much more to you and me. He's talking to his leaders. And what, they are, what he's saying is, he guys, be very careful. Be very careful because even you apostles, even you who are going to enjoy the, out, the infilling of the Spirit, Through the you through which the New Testament is going to be authored by the power of the Spirit, you yourselves are at risk of being led astray. You yourselves are going to experience an age at the very start of the church when you will face many competing claims as to who Jesus is, and they will be so persuasive. They will be so powerful in their demonstration, not just of the tongue, but of power, demonic power, we will see, that even you, apostles, even you who know me and love me and are going to witness my death, resurrection, and ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit, even you, you yourselves, are at risk. And so I want to put in your hearts and in mine this morning a deep caution When you start coming to predictions of the future and teachings around the future, you have to be as cautious as Jesus commanded the first generation of apostles. Can I just get an amen? Amen. Please, guys, this is not something that we just pick up and put down as a fascination point. This is something that has a deep impact on our personal progress in the kingdom. And what we believe about and how we relate to it can either lead to our flourishing or our collapse, which I want to share in just a moment. And, friends, the reason why we are vulnerable around end times, these claims and teachings, and, is because we are fascinated as human beings with the future. How many of you, I ran yesterday past the Fortune Tellers' caravan in Western Avenue? Any of you seen that there? She seems to do her rounds once a year. She normally parked further up outside Hemingway's. You don't have to be a Christian to be afraid of what's coming in the future and have a fascination of being to know what it is. There are plenty of occultic experiences. Entire religions have established themselves on the ability to protect the future. The, who of you know the Oracle of Delphi? Right? We have a fascination. It is just so tantalizing to have the inside scoop as to what might happen. Friends, that's the first thing that we've got to be careful of. The second is our need for security. We want to know what's going to happen, and, and by knowing we can brace ourselves and in, a, in crises, it's even worse. That's why eschatology, the teaching of end times, becomes so fascinating when there's so much trouble. In times of peace, you don't think about it at all. But I also want to say a caution here. The reason why we're vulnerable is if we are deeply enthusiastic about Jesus. Now, friends, this is very personal for me this morning. I was best man at a friend's wedding If you had said in the church who would be led astray by someone's false claim of being the incarnate Christ, it would never have been him. And his marriage, his situation in the church, and I can tell you it wasn't just him, there was a whole handful of the most enthusiastic people in our little evangelical church in PE. They are today nowhere because they have followed some loony Who through little bit by little bit, through persuasive teaching and through peer pressure has caused a shipwreck of their faith. And the kind of person this interests is the kind of person who is very enthusiastic to see a move of God. A person who is very, very zealous to see Jesus come in power and to even see revival. They're the kinds of people that are sincere and, and, and zealous and enthusiastic that when so, there's some sort of claim, they're so desperate to see it, they believe it. They're, 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 they're vulnerable for all the right reasons. And today I want to guard you to, please, this is not an abstract theory for me. This is a reality And how we relate to these teachings and claims has got a massive impact on our progress in the faith. And I want to remind you, Jesus said that these guys are going to be successful. He said, not only many in your lifetime, apostles, I always feel for them. They always encourage me, but as church leaders, because they got a lot of trouble coming their way. But it's not just trouble, it's success. Many will be led astray. And if we look at this text this morning and say, ha ha ha, idiots, let me tell you, your prime targets. So, I want you this morning in my first point I don't care if the guy can turn hedgehogs into bunnies. I don't care if he can cast a mountain into the sea. I don't care if he can raise the dead. I don't care what power of words he can use. Friends, if he claims to be a Christ or she claims to have the spirit of the incarnate Christ, you denounce him publicly and you shun them as fast as you can. Are you with me this morning? Some of you might be afraid this morning you're going to miss Jesus. What if it might be right? What if I'm too stupid to miss the second coming of Christ? Let me tell you, let me put your mind at ease this morning. When the Son of God comes, the angelic trumpets are going to blast. He's going to come on clouds of glory, and there's going to be thunder and lightning. And he won't be saying, oh, please believe in me. He'll be saying, it's too late. It's too late. The age of faith is shut down, and no longer can you believe my claim. The fact of my coming is before you, and by the naked eye, you will see the Son of God and tremble in worship and honor and glory. And you will not be going there, oh, did I miss No, no, no. Friends, today when Christ comes, all of you will be face down. In actual fact, Thessalonians says... Christians will be caught up to be with him, and he said, come, you will descend with those that have already died. You will come down with Jesus. You won't be seen. You will be behind him. It will be the most glorious moment, and you will come. And the world that has rejected Christ, the world that has run after false Christ, the world that has stumbled along in the love of sin, they'll be causing the rocks to harden. They'll be causing the, the, very, the very world, the very earth to shut themselves from this glory of Jesus. And so, friends, we are to be on our guard. That's my first point. My second point today is we are to prepare ourselves for a life of faith. Oh, this was medicine to my soul. Do you know what I love about this part of Jesus' teaching? Is He first starts by saying what is not the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's quite profound. He says here, wars and rumors of wars... I want to say wars are not a sign of the second coming of Jesus. And <laughs> wasn't even for those Jews and those Jewish believers. There were plenty of wars. I can give you loads, loads and loads. Vespasian, Titus's father, I think it was, fought a massive civil war. There was wars with the Germans, wars with the, 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 the Sassanian Empire, the Persians. There were all sorts of, of upheavals. There were famines. Famines, natural disasters, not a sign of the second coming or the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus says. Racial wars between one nation, which means ethnic group in the Greek, or even between political conflicts, one kingdom rises up, Russia against the West. It's not a sign. It's not a sign of of the second coming of Jesus or even the destruction of Jerusalem. He says these are merely the birth pains. What it means is it's ushering in this first generation of the church with a massive change in the status quo of that Jewish covenant of Moses and that temple's destroyed. It's going to be a turning point in the world evangelizing of God's people. They're going to be scattered. There's going to be a a progress that will be begun through this mighty act of, of, of judgment upon the temple that is going to cause the progress of the kingdom to flourish. It's going to cause the birth pains of God's intended will to come to the nations. What a lot for these disciples to take in, because all of these things happened within their first generation. And Jesus says to them, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. This is just the beginning. In other words, friends, can you just... I'm praying for grace to help me this morning. But this is a breakthrough moment for some of us, including me, if we will grasp what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying to these disciples is this In your life, you must prepare in your heart and mind to live a life of faith. It's very important, this. What Jesus is saying is in this world, you will have trouble. No Christian is exempt. What I love about this opening point of wars, famines, disasters, all these things, do you notice that they they happen to people indiscriminately? It's not because you're Christian that you experience these earthquakes, and it's not because you're Christian that you won't. What he's saying is, in your life, you are going to have trouble, and unless you accept that you are going to need to live a life of faith, you won't live it at all. The right definition for trouble is this, a testing of faith. Now, why do I want to say that this morning is we are not very clear on this as Christians. And I'm going to use something that's quite sensitive this morning, but I want you to think about it very carefully because it's the best example I can think of. The example of immigration. Now, I'm the first to say I have a British passport, by the way. My mom was born in Southampton. I have got options, cheap options. So this is not something that's just, you know, and by the way, I want to be helpful to you this morning if you're considering leaving. There are many, many valid reasons to move the country. One is a hope, a passion for the gospel. The second is perhaps work is just opening up and you get an opportunity to go. There's no work here, God opens the door. Perhaps you get transferred. Perhaps there's a sick loved one. You know, God has many reasons to move his people. The destruction of a city is one of them. But what I'm worried about is we must be very careful about our reason for going if it is this, that we think that we can create a posture in our life where we will no longer need to trust God for provision, protection, and peace. To do that is unbelief, friends. If you are going to another country because you're wanting a welfare state to replace your daily dependence on Jesus, to secure your life outside of what you have committed to the moment you came to Christ, which is day by day, you are living from His hands. You are trusting Him as the hours unfold of your life. That he is your provider. He is your protector. He is your inner leader that gives you a sense of peace and his capacity to control the situations around you. If you are moving for any reason that would cause that to be diminished or to be replaced by comforts or an earthly institution, that you will no longer need to trust God because you feel safe, you'll feel provided for, and you'll feel secure. Friends, that is not being motivated by faith. That's being motivated by unbelief. And it will damage you. What God is interested in is our faith looking the same overseas as in South Africa. And I'll give you a very good example. There is a lovely lady in our church called Anne Marie. She looks after our, our kids. She's like this surrogate gran. And Anne Marie has to drive in from Sunnyridge, and uh, she drives in her car and uh, twice coming to our house to look after our kids. She had a grab incident where, outside the Fleet Street police station, people opened the door, grabbed her handbag, and ran away. It happened twice. And uh, my little girl and boy are there. When she arrives at the home, she's, this has just happened. I mean, to her credit, Marie has got quite a remarkable faith. But she's flustered. And the second time it happened, we decided to pray together. Sarah and Elijah and myself. We stand with Annemarie and we pray The next day I get home, when I arrive home, Sarah comes running. She says, Daddy, Daddy, you won't believe it. Jesus answered our prayer. Anna-Marie arrived today, and she wasn't robbed. (laughs) And that week, I happened to talk to a friend who's just emigrated to Australia. And he said, you know, these guys have got it so good in that there's no real crisis. There's no real need for faith. So I said, can I just tell you what happened with my little girl this week? You know what I'm excited by? Is Sarah in that moment? Sure, Anna-Marie had to forgive those guys. She had to work through having to trust God to drive through past the Fleet Street police station. There are unique stresses and strains to being in this place. But let me tell you, the opportunity for faith is massive. And my kids are seeing that there is a dimension that guards our lives. Greater than all the police force in the world. It's his angelic realm of, under the leadership of Jesus. And if, he has to, if he's called us to live here, he's going to keep us here. He's going to sustain us here. And he's going to look after us. That's the kind of faith we need. I don't mind if you go overseas. That's the kind of faith you need to live for Jesus. And if you think that that's the hope of securing your life and you teaching your children that if we just run away, that everything's going to be okay because the government's going to be God to us. The society right, is going to be so nice to our children, making us jobs and all these things. Friends, if that's the reason why you're going, you're missing the point of faith because when Jesus said to these first-generation apostles, he said, I'm setting the tone for all those who are going to follow after you. You're going to face trouble. And you know what the joy is when you live a life of faith? is you realize that there's something much greater secure in your life than transient governments and fickle bosses and hurtful family members. Even the injustice is under what Neville said today, this mighty hand of God. And can I say to you today, what we are needing in this day and age are people who realize their lives are in the hands of God. Not our own. How many of you have questions today about the future? I'm sure you've got a lot. How many of you are scared about the future? I'm sure you have a lot. But I want to say today the recourse and the response is not to run away, church. The right response to that is saying, Has God changed? Is His hand too short to save? How many of our forefathers are examples of God's miraculous provision according to his promise? We are called to live by faith, not by sight. And that means you don't look at the economy to see what's going to provide for you. You don't look at government who's going to be enough. They will never be enough for you. And let me tell you, the church has been at her worst when the government has been at its best. Victorian England, you know what the great sin of the Victorian church was? Was a self-satisfaction. But there's something vital about when God's people decide. We don't live our lives according to what we see. Is it tough? Yes. Do you lose sleep? Yes. Are there unresolved questions? Yes. Are you like these four disciples going to Jesus and saying, what on earth is going on? Yes, but let me tell you what Christ says to them. He says, don't you be alarmed. Don't you be afraid. Don't you take this as a surprise that when trouble comes, you don't know what it's there for. Friends, what the kind of people Christ is needing then and what he's needing now is when trouble comes, they see it as an opportunity of faith, not to face it with an absence of it. You know, one of my joys as a pastor is to see exponential growth when people take on the trial to trust Jesus, even when they can't see what the outcome is going to be. Do you want to grow in the Lord this morning? You will face racism in your heart. You will face uncertainty around economy and security. There will be multiple things that you will use in his excuse not to trust him. But I ask you this morning, where are you going to land? Because at the end of the day, this walk with Jesus is a daily decision to say, My life is in your hands. My children are in your hands. And I'm not saying don't process going overseas, but what I'm saying is you better make sure you're in the will of God as much as you feel you're in the will of God here. Because at the end of the day, church, this world is short and trouble is guaranteed, but we are going to see there is a blessing on the other side for the one who endures The one who trusts God, not according to what he sees, but according to what God has said. The one who walks by faith, not by sight. There is a wonderful inheritance and there is a wonderful participation in the kingdom that is not worth missing out on. Jesus says there's going to be deeper trials than just these natural disasters and, and governments and wars and all sorts of things. There's going to be the personal trial of rejection because of your love for Jesus. Can I just put your mind at ease? I know that there's some big conversation happening in schools about no longer being able to be called a girl's school, not being able to do this gender debate. All sorts of pressure. I was at a small group um, two weeks ago where this teacher was expressing Um, uncertainty. She got a memorandum from the Department of Education saying, you may not favor any religion in your class. Saying, how do I reconcile this with the gospel? How do I live out my love for Jesus where he's put me? There are these increasing pressures upon us as Christians. But friends, I want to say to you today, Jesus prepares us by saying, you will never be popular. You will never be applauded for your love for Jesus when shared with the world. There will always be a mixed response, and that's okay. And today, we need encouragement to share the gospel, to love Jesus. And Jesus said, if you're going to live out this life of faith, you can expect that there will be a subtle rejection for the sake of you sharing your love for Jesus and your desire for others to love him. And it will come from surprising places. It will come within fellow Christians, the religious establishment. The church has been her own worst persecutor in her history. Political persecution, discrimination. One's own family says, your brother or father, your children will even hand you over to martyrdom or be put to death. These things, Jesus is saying, don't be alarmed. Don't be discouraged. In other words, in your life for Jesus, you will have to trust him every single day for provision, protection, and peace. But you'll also have to display that trust for Jesus by practicing forgiveness. I know of many people in this room that have difficult family members and colleagues because of their love for Christ. You continue in love to share Jesus. But friends, we must not be surprised when we face mixed responses. And in the end, what Christ calls for because of this life of faith, it requires endurance. And that's why I want to say in your life, you must settle it. This is not going to be a cruise ship to glory. It's a battleship. You, you are having to train. You, 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 you're in a war. There is a, a pressure upon our faith as a church. And our appropriate response is to be one of endurance. One of saying, ah, I'm not rolling over. I'm not running away. I am going to hold to faith. In other words, it is possible to fall into unbelief. We don't want to be like that. We want to have endurance. And we have every reason to endure this morning. How many of you here are worried that one day, because of your stand for Jesus you might be drawn before law courts and you won't know what to say or whether or not you'll really stand for martyrdom. Anyone had that thought when you hear about hardship and troubles? That Am I going to be enough? Jesus guarantees. He says, all you worry about is you don't deny Christ. The Holy Spirit will tell you exactly what to say when it's your turn to give your defense for Christ. You don't have to worry about it. One stitch. You will endure if you trust him. Second, he says, look at the success of the gospel. He says, this gospel needs to go to all the nations before this destruction of Jerusalem comes. Jesus says, guys, don't think that this gospel is going to lose. It's going to win. And I want to tell you today, even if God requires your life, it will not be in vain. Tertullian said, "The, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The reason why we stand and we carry on sharing our love for Jesus wherever we work, live, and play, the reason why we go on trusting that He is sufficient to lead us through every season of history and season of planet earth in the kingdom is because we believe that this gospel is going to win. Amen? It's going to win. And what He wants these these disciples to see is we are not sitting back intimidated by these things. We're not sitting back and saying, oh, we're going to hide behind our fear and our passivity and the political excuses, family excuses. No, no, no. What we're going to do is we're going to love Jesus and we're going to go for it in the gospel because in the end, it's going to be successful. Do you know that within the first generation of those apostles, the whole four corners of the Roman Empire had Christians dispersed within it. It started at Pentecost. Every single uh, person from different nations or different nations represented when they started to preach the gospel. and accepted to. This gospel is moving forward, and we are on the winning side. And friends, our faith will be rewarded. But there's also another reason why we endure this morning. And Jesus says, "But the one who endures to the end will be saved." What does that mean? Is he worried that these disciples are somehow going to deny Christ and lose their salvation? Are you worried about that? Are you worried that perhaps you won't be strong enough to endure whatever tribulation or trial will come upon you? Well, it's pretty hectic of what what, uh, these disciples are going to face. No, friends, this morning, Jesus says to these disciples that there is an aspect around their salvation they have not yet received. The one who endures to the end will be saved. What on earth is Jesus talking about here? Well, we can see it was an encouragement to endure. Not only would they be helped by the Holy Spirit to stand for Jesus, not only are they on the winning team with the success of the gospel, but they are promised great reward. Whenever you come to tenses of salvation in Scripture, and some of you know this well, but don't forget it, is that salvation is presented in three tenses in Scripture you have been saved. You are being saved. And you will be saved. In other words, friends, is Jesus saying that it's possible for these guys to do their salvation? No. Of course not. Because we believe salvation is not granted you as a work but as a gift of faith. And it's actually the finished work of Christ that you receive by faith that qualifies you to even enter into this race to get to glory. And Paul says, as certain as this, he says, those who were called were justified. No, have I got it right? Those who were. Help me out, Joe. I hit a blank. Those who were called were justified, and those who were justified were glorified. Those who were predestined were called. Those who were called were justified, and those who were justified are glorified. The chain is there. And the reason why we have a confidence to stand in this day and age is because we're standing on Christ and His finished work. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you actually receive His perfect faith. You put your little faith and you receive His perfect faith, as you put it in Him. In other words, He, he believes even perfectly for you. This Jesus is sufficient to hold you and keep you and to forgive all of your sin and sustain you unto, unto glory. You, you do not have to worry a single stitch this morning that if you've come to faith in Him, Somehow, your foolish works could undo that. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of yourself, it is a gift of God. We have been saved. We've been justified. We've been transferred from this kingdom of darkness into God's dear Son. We've been forgiven. We've been set free. We've been cleansed. We are already seated in the heavenly places, Paul says. We are already enjoying union with Christ. No one can snatch us from His hands, Scripture tells us. Your name is engraved on the Father's palms. You are perfectly secure in the love of God to you as Father. You're secure. But we are still needing to be saved, which is sanctification, sanctification. Although in our status we are holy and we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God, we still have to work out that status into our behavior. You still have habits of sin that God has to deal in you and change, right? Salvation isn't fully complete yet. It's growing. We're working it out. We're not working for it. We're working it out. But then there is still something wonderful. We are being saved, but we will be saved. Friends, are we in glory yet? Are you delivered from this body of sin yet? Do you still have to fight temptation to sin? here? Yeah. Are we in a world where there is no sin yet? Has God ushered in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells? Yet no. Friends, today we are living in still a future space of our salvation, which is to be received. We are going to be saved. And with that, oh, there is this promise of reward. When God saved you, He saved you not only to rescue you from sin, but He saved you for good works. You have been given a promise in your life. It's like that first generation of Israelites. They trusted in the blood of the Passover lamb. They went straight into trouble. There was the wilderness, and they had to go on believing. But there was something else. What did they still have to enter into? The promised There was still reward for them. Through faith and patience, they were there. They were there to inherit the promises. And what Jesus is saying to these guys is this He's saying, guys, the way you choose to trust Jesus right now in your trouble echoes into eternity. I want to ask you today, what excites you when you wake up in the morning? Is it that somehow you're going to have a nice home with a nice family, with a nice educated space of degree, nice pension? Is that what excites you? Or this window period where you get to live for Jesus and trust Him And how you, through faith and patience, obey Him day by day, gets rewarded. And that day, it will last forever. And I want to land saying this. My next point is that God knows the future perfectly. And today, as you figure out your space in trusting Him by faith, let me tell you that is in this wonderful framework of God's sovereignty. He predicts the fall of Jerusalem perfectly. He knows exactly what's going to happen to the perf- perfect nth degree. He knows how to lead his people. He even warns them beforehand. He is so perfectly in control of our future and the world's, we can trust him. He's going to steer it for his glory and our good. I don't know how Ukraine and Russia is going to work out. I don't know how COVID is going to work out. I don't know how... how, how, how um, the South African continent's is going to work out, but I know what, or know who's in control. It's God. I know that the outcome is going to be for his glory. I know he sees me as an elect. He understands his people and their needs in the midst of even judgment. The way he deals with Jerusalem, he's got us on his mind. He's got his people on his mind. He has a wonderful way of being able to move this world forward through trouble whilst keeping his elect Primarily in his uh, point of focus. Today, his eye is on you. You can trust him for the future. And he invites us to pray. My next point is he says, Guys, pray that it may not happen in winter. His control of the future doesn't squash our participation in it. Prayer moves things, prayer changes things. I want to ask you, we can complain about Ukraine and Russia. We can complain about the after effects of COVID. We can complain about our government. What are we doing about it? Are we praying? Church, are we praying? Because at the end of the day, even God's judgment and how he executes it on Jerusalem says, Pray that it won't be in winter. We might not change his mind ultimately on a judgment call, but even how he mercifully executes it can be affected through prayer. Prayer is powerful. Prayer changes nations. Ask the Lord about how to pray for Russia and Ukraine, and He'll speak to you. He'll speak to you. I'm tempted to share, but He'll talk to you about what to pray for. I'm telling you, He will lead you how to participate in the future prospects of this nation and beyond. Please, friends, we've got an opportunity as a church to pray. My last point is this. My last point is this. It's a double warning. We need to be very careful around how we relate to these false Christs and false prophets. I want to leave you with this advice and counsel from the Word of God. Whenever somebody claims to have a special status in the kingdom, you reject it. You hear me? You reject it. At the end, it says, Many will come and claim to be Christ and claim to be false prophets. Friends, what you listen to is their message. Doesn't matter how nice they are, doesn't matter how powerful they are in their working of miracles. They'll say, even with signs and wonders, Friends, there's a double warning here. Jesus starts and he ends for our good and for our protection. If you ever hear me saying, I have the spirit of Isaiah, I have some, some strange, you know, you tell this guy to take me and lock me up and not release me into the pulpit until there's some sort of sanity and repentance, right? The reason is it's getting worse in the church. It's not getting better. And today... We want you to run your race well. Next week, we'll talk about the second coming and how that all plays out, but today, friends, will you decide in your heart you are going to trust Jesus? That ugly boss, no food in the cupboard, uncertain about education of your kids, work conditions. Will you trust Jesus today to be your provider, your protector and giver of peace? Will you eight o'clock? Will you pray? Will you pray? Will you see your participation in the kingdom as being something of great significance to the heart of God, this invitation to shape the future? And will you do this with great caution? We are to approach these end times teachings with great reverence, caution, and respect. And hopefully next week we'll move a step forward and talking about what we, we might be more fascinated with, but in their day, friends... It's speaking to us today. We need to brace ourselves for a life of faith, dependency expressed through prayer, and a willingness to trust the Lord with deep caution. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you this morning for the blessing of standing on your word. As nations rise and fall, I pray our faith would grow deeper, will grow more certain. Lord, we don't know what's ahead of us as a church. It might be persecutions. It might be suffering. Lord, it was nothing new to the first generation of apostles and to the testing of their faith. We pray it would be nothing new in our surprise in the testing of our faith. But as an 8 o'clock service and as SBC, we pray that we would be faithful. We would have faith that endures all forms of hardship, all forms of uncertain questions this morning. And we, we were deeply rooted in Christ to say, Lord, we trust you. We trust you. Lord, and I pray that there would be an opening of a space of prayer for us as your people that we've never encountered before. Might we be not just fascinated with concern, Lord, might we translate it into deep prayer. I pray that you'd put the nations on our hearts as a church. I pray that you'd put the peoples that don't yet know Jesus on our hearts as a church. I pray that you would help us participate in this time and in this age, faithfully and fully. That we would finish our race well, Lord, for you. That Father, when we stand before you one day, we will get the honor of your well done. We don't know how much time is left, Lord. Your second coming is around the corner, and we are asking: would be a people ready? Life is short, Lord, but it's not short of glory.